So with that, let's open in prayer. Yahweh, we just thank you for this day. Um, we thank you for um, just the amazing God that you are. And I just pray as we go through your word today and your revelation to us, the only way that we know who you are is through your words and the way that you revealed yourself through history and time in this book. And I just pray that you um, just speak to us today, reveal yourself to us, speak through me, um, give me clarity of mind and clarity of words to communicate how amazing and how awesome and how loving of a God that you are and just how intimately involved in creation you are and our lives and history. And at the same time, just how unique you are to all the things. I just pray that they would see the beauty of your word and how you've put it all together, and then most importantly, the beauty of who you are. And so I just pray that you just give us clear minds, um, drive all the things that are worrying us and keeping us up away tonight. Just allow us to focus on your words that we may be refreshed. In Jesus' name, amen. So I also have assumed that you read the Yahweh's mastery over the sea. If you're plugging through it, as long as you get through the um, in Egyptian and Canaanite accounts, that's the most important part. The rest of it kind of just helps you put it in the context of Scripture. But for Genesis, those first six, seven pages, I think it is, is the most important. So um, to get through that. So I will refer to that here and there. If you haven't read it, please go back and read it because that will just be beneficial to you. Um, but you need to understand the world that this book is being written in. You cannot understand the Bible without understanding the culture that was written in. Because too often we have read it with too many American eyes. And I do believe that scripture is relevant to us today, but it was written to them and their culture, their language, both metaphorically and the Hebrew. So um, it is important to understand that world. And how weird it was. So um, hopefully no one was too disgusted reading it. So, but it's also important to know, and all my students will tell you, I do not candy coat anything. This is reality. So Genesis. Let's get started with the setting. Genesis is the first book in the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. They are hate to say this, but one of the most important books in the entire Bible. It's kind of hard to say that about the Bible, but they are the most important because they are the foundation to everything. If you do not understand the Torah, you will not understand the house that is built on it, which is all the other books. The other thing too is most of your ideas are defined in the Torah. Um, it's called the law of first mention. Anytime that you're reading the Bible and you don't understand what that word or that phrase or that typology or that symbol means, it's probably because it's already been mentioned somewhere else in the Bible. And you need to go back to the first time it was mentioned to have it defined for you so you can understand how it's being used. What God typically does, I would say 95% of the stuff in the Bible has already been developed in the Torah. And everything else is just building off of that and being repeated over and over and over again. And so the Torah is the most important, and especially Genesis. And so this is the beginning of all things, the beginning of creation, the beginning of humanity, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption. And the setting is Moses is the author of the Torah. Um, he, not that he wrote every single word, but that he gathered it all together. There's probably a lot that he did write. 
especially Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is all him talking. Um, and Leviticus is all him just dictating the words of God. Leviticus is like the biggest quote of God, yet it's the least read book. And so, but a lot of like Genesis, obviously, he was not there for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But a lot of those stories were recorded and he gathered them together. And this is all happening around 1446 after that. And this is basically right after Israel has left Egypt through the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. They've been brought into the wilderness where they were supposed to be there for two years, but their sin will make them be there for 38 more years, so a total of 40. And so he's gathering these writings, these stories, and writing his own, and gathering them together into the Torah, which means teachings, instructions of how one shall live in the wilderness, and then the Deuteronomy will be the second giving of the law of how one lives in the land. And so who he's writing to, this is important to understand. He is writing to Jews who have been enslaved for about 250 to 300 years in Egypt. And we are told in Joshua that they have begun to worship the Egyptian gods. Um, most of them have walked away from God, and if you doubt that, just read the book of Numbers. Um, most of them begun to walk away from God. They're worshiping Egyptian gods. They're worshiping the Egyptian culture. And they're going to move into the Canaanite land, which is north of Egypt and northeast. And they're going to immediately go into Canaanite worships of Baal and that kind of stuff. And so this is why it's very important to understand the religion of the Egyptians, the religions of the Canaanites and the Mesopotamians, because Abraham is going to come from Mesopotamia. So they're all influenced by these cultures. So he's writing to them the history of who God is and his calling of Abraham and how they are the fulfillment or the, the inheritance of that promise. And so he's trying to emphasize to them why their God is so unique to all other gods and has done something that no other God has ever done and to remind them that they are children of the promise, and this God will always honor his promises. Therefore, they owe their allegiance to him. That's the context. That's the setting. So the purpose of the book is um, to communicate two things. That Yahweh is completely and ultimately sovereign and transcendent over all things. Sovereign just means absolute authority. The buck stops here. Okay, And transcendent means completely separate from outside of the material realm, um, disconnected, so to speak. And so that he is this, yet he is intimately involved in creation, promising to make a people that he will use to bless the entire world. And that is ultimately seen in Abraham. And so this is the purpose. Everything of what we're going to go through is what we were intended to be, Genesis 1 through 2. How we lost that, Genesis 3 through 11, that's the you are a giant big scumbag. Okay, it's the make you feel good part. It's kind of like Romans. Romans follows the, the structure of Genesis. Um, God the creator, you're a horrible person, and thank God Jesus. Okay, and so then we come to chapter 12 where Abraham is introduced. And this is God's answer to the sin problem in 3 through 11. And then basically the idea is that God's going to give him a land, make him a great nation, personally bless him, and we'll go over this again when we get to chapter 12, so that he may be a blessing to the world. That's the ultimate point of Genesis, is that this God who's above all things has chosen to step into creation 
to make and honor promises that will restore the world back to him. And this is where it begins. Now, that's basically the whole Bible. But because this is the beginning, this is where it's emphasized more than anything else. And so this is the beginning of that. So this is seen first in the fact that he'll create the world. He chooses to step in and actually create a material realm within his heavenly abode. And then he will give humanity the image of God. And then we see this in the second major event where we lose that um, blessings and dwelling with God because of our sin. But yet God steps in. You're going to see God step into the garden and pursue Adam and Eve. He steps in. He pursues Cain. He steps in. He pursues Noah and the flood. He steps in. He comes down to the Tower of Babel. And so you see God, despite sin, coming in, 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 over and over again. And so, and then the third event is with the giving of Abraham and the covenant there. And so this is the ultimate purpose. The transcendent, intimately relational, blessing God who reveals himself in three major events. Creation, fall, and the Abrahamic promises. And so that's where we're going. So, there are three major themes. There's tons of themes, but there are three major themes in this book. The first one is the sovereign and personal Yahweh. It is important for you to understand that the only place that you ever learn about who God is is in the First Testament. God never reveals himself in the Second Testament, the New Testament. All the character of God, the attributes of God, and what he says and how he involves himself and word and deed and thought is all in the First Testament. If you really go through the Second Testament, God only speaks three times in the Gospels. And other than that, the epistles are just theology about who God is. But you don't see God at work. You don't see God really talking. You don't see God doing anything in the Second Testament. So you can't really know God. You can learn theology about God from the Second Testament, but you can't get to know God in action in the Second Testament. And so it's in the First Testament that God steps in and he is speaking and creating and he's walking with Abraham and he's coming in and he's speaking to the prophets and you see him actually as an anthropological being at work in creation. And that's how you get to know God. The reason is, by the time you get to the Second Testament, God will come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And you need to be able to recognize him when he shows up. And so if God is revealing new things about him that nobody's ever known in Jesus, then the Jews could legitimately say, you're a different God. But by the fact that Jesus doesn't do anything new, he just does the same thing that God does, then no Jew can legitimately say you're a different God. And so that's the primary reason that God reveals himself. First, stories are much easier to see somebody action than theology. But two, so that you will recognize Christ and not have any doubt of who he is because he's not doing anything new that would throw up red flags. He's doing the exact same thing that God does. He carries the same honors, the same attributes, the same names, does the same deeds as God does. And so it's Christ that you see at work. And so if you want to know God, you have to go to that really strange, culturally weird First Testament in order to learn about it. So my hope is to take the weirdness out. It will still be weird, but to make it understandable. But your life is weird too, and so is America. 
So, so the first theme is the sovereign personal Yahweh. You need to understand there is no other God, no other being, no other philosophy, no other belief, no other worldview in the entire world where a God or a being is both sovereign and relational at the same time. That is unique to the Bible. You will not find that anywhere. If, you want, if people ask what's so different about Christianity, bam, right there, starting with God. And so the first theme is that God is completely sovereign. He is completely transcendent. And the best way to think about it is two circles, completely separate from each other. And the one is God, and the other is the material realm. Okay, And they are completely separate. That's what transcendence is. Transcendence is he is completely disconnected, completely separate from it. So, which means this, whatever happens here will not affect him. If you cut down a tree, God's not going to lose a part of himself. Okay, if there's a whole bunch of evil and chaos in the planet, God's not becoming more evil. If you're destroying something in creation, God's not being destroyed. If you're creating something new, you're not adding to God. Nothing in here affects that in the spiritual realm and vice versa. Okay, God is completely transcendent, completely separate. And therefore, there is nothing, and this is one of the reasons for the first command, the second command, you should make no graven images. There's nothing in creation that you can use as a metaphor and analogy of who God is. There's, you can't say God is like, because he's completely transcendent and not like anything in creation. Okay, and so that's the first thing you must understand is because, then therefore, because he's completely separate, he's also the author of creation. And by being the author and the creator of something, that makes you completely sovereign over all things. The reason you have headship over your children is because you created them. And when you make something artistically, you own it. You have authority to do whatever you want with it. And so to create everything makes them sovereign and owner over all things. And so this is the first concept that you learn about God, is that God is transcendent, unlike, disconnected, not affected in any way by creation, and he's the creator of all creation, therefore he's sovereign over all things. But he also chooses to involve himself in the creation. And this is what we call the eminence of God, or relationship. <laughs> Okay, and so he chooses to actually enter into creation and actually get involved with it. So you need to understand, God is completely unknowable. You cannot ever know God on your own, through your own efforts, through your own skill, your own intelligence, your own pursuit. The only way you can ever know God is if he chooses to reveal himself to you, which he has. It's called the 66 books of the Bible. It's called himself and creation. And it's called the Holy Spirit. It's called Jesus Christ. But without those, he's unknowable. And so this is where God shows a, re a desire for relationship. He makes himself knowable. But the first thing he does is he doesn't just speak creation existence. He gets his hands on it. And we're told that he walks in the cool of the garden. All the way through Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit, and then ultimately the kingdom of God that will come down onto earth. And so he is intimately involved. So therefore, he does allow himself to be affected by creation emotionally. What you do physically here will not affect him, but what you do relationally here will affect him emotionally. 
He allows himself to be affected by you emotionally and therefore be involved with you emotionally in a reciprocal relationship. And so that's what makes it so hard is you have this completely unknowable God who's completely unlike anything in creation, completely disconnected from it, yet he chooses to enter into creation and the only way he can reveal himself is through our limited symbols and language. And so as we come to Genesis, you need to understand that the only thing that we can know about God is what our, our flawed metaphors, our flawed language, our flawed symbols can communicate. It'd be like going back in time to King David and trying to explain television to him and airplanes and quantum physics and the particle accelerators. Okay, you're going to be lacking in what you can use. And so in some ways, we can know a lot about God because he is the creator of the world who created the world in order to communicate himself, and he is the master communicator. But at the same time, there's nothing in this world that can even begin to comprehend who he truly is. And so there is this noble, but there is this mystery of God. And we have to hold those in tension. And unfortunately, as Americans who are a product of the Enlightenment, where we think if we just think hard enough, we can figure everything out, and we're obsessed with that, we have unfortunately said too many things that we can't really be totally confident about who God is in the book of Genesis. Now, my goal is not to like erase who God is and make him unknowable to you. My goal is to try to elevate the mystery of God a little bit more that I think we've kind of ruined and lost in. That awesome, that get him out of the box sense. And so this is how he reveals himself. So you see this, and we will see this theme as we go through. And because he's also creator of all things, he's also our moral authority. And so he has the right. And so you're going to see that creation is going to be directly connected to the Sinai covenant where he gives the Mosaic law. God is going to speak 10 times. And there's 10 laws in the Mosaic covenant between creation and there. And so you're going to see these themes tying him that if he is creator... And then he has the right to give laws to the Jews who just came out of Egypt. And so, and expect things from them. The other thing that you're going to find about him is he's the only one who pursues you. He's the only God that will chase you to the ends of the earth, literally and more, <laughs> and actually have a relationship with you. And so, you see this. You're going to see God's pursuit. And you're really going to see God's pursuit in the book of Hosea. Um, where God says, hey, Hosea, marry a prostitute, and she'll never be faithful to you, and she'll keep going to other people, and you're going to have kids that you probably don't even know are yours, but you're supposed to keep taking her back because that's who I am. And then he ultimately pursues us with the truth of Jesus Christ and the cross. And so God is the only God that never, ever, ever abandons you, never gives up on you, and always pursues you to the ends of the earth. You will not find any other God, any other being in the entire universe that are both of these things. When you get to, like, Greek mythology, all their gods are very personal, sometimes way too personal, um, if you know anything about their mythologies. But they're not sovereign. They're not disconnected. For them, the worlds overlap. And what, how, if you kick a rock here or something like that, it's affecting. If Zeus has a bad day, there's a storm on the earth. 
Okay, if you, I mean, um, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad is a good example. that You can affect the gods. You can alter them in some kind of a way. And you can become gods. And so they're, you are, they're interlinked with each other. They're weakened. They're not sovereign. They're only limited certain regions, that kind of stuff. Then you get to the Greeks um, with their mystery religions. And they think of a, a noble god as completely sovereign over things, but he is unknowable. And when you get to Allah, Allah of the Islamic religion is very powerful, all sovereign, the creator of the entire universe, and everything belongs to him and everything owes itself to him, but he is unknowable and impersonal and will never, doesn't even want to know you and makes no effort to get to know you. And so then when you get to Hinduism, the gods are unknowable because everything is an illusion. <laughs> okay, so, and God is powerful in everything, but God is not sovereign, which is weird. You will not find this. And of course, in atheism, you're all a mistake. Your random chance of synapses and evolution. So there is no God, which means you are God. And that's sad. Um, so he's the only God that pursues you to the ends of the earth. And there's this word in the Hebrew that keeps showing up over and over again called chesed. Okay, chesed, H-E-S-E-D. It is the Hebrew equivalent of agape. And basically, it is, it's not just condition, unconditional love, it's charity. Charity is probably a more graphic definition because it's a love where you actively demonstrate loving kindness in somebody's life with no expectation of anything returned return or any benefit. And that word shows up a ton in the book of Ruth. But there is no other writing and the ancient world that uses any kind of word or idea that comes anywhere close to that word chesed. It does not show up outside of the Bible and the ancient world. It's not until after Christ comes along and his persona affects literature so much that that idea will start coming up. But until then, you only see that concept so far discovered in archaeology, you, you will only find that concept of chesed agape in the Bible. And that says something very unique about who God is. And so basically the Jewish Bible revealed a God that is unknown and unfound in anywhere in the ancient world and even to this day. And of course, as we keep going on too, other things that you'll learn about God is that he's the only God that requires you to come to him by faith and not works and salvation. And that's not directly revealed in Genesis. Genesis begins to lay the foundation for it that will be more developed later. Um, but there is no other God, no other being, no other philosophy or religion that ever says no works, just faith and grace. Every other religion's works and, and effort or skill or ethnicity or talent or intelligence or something like that. This makes the God of the First Testament completely unique. And we haven't even gotten to Jesus yet. The second theme is Yahweh is a covenantal God. A covenant is where two people come together in agreement and a binding agreement that you can't get out of unless there's death involved. You can get out of it because you're a sinner, but it usually ends in your death. Now, today, if we violate a, a, an agreement, we just get a good lawyer. Back then, they cleave you in half, okay? Or they just cut you and kill you. So it's a binding 
And this goes into the first theme, kind of, because he is the only God that literally binds himself to you in a covenant where he puts conditions upon himself. The almighty God of the universe who owes nothing to anybody and has to do nothing for anybody actually puts conditions upon himself and a relationship and says, I will do this. And as Hebrews says, because there's no one higher than himself, he had to swear by his own name. Okay, and so the reality is he is the only God that actually steps in and doesn't just have a relationship with you, doesn't just pursue you, but actually makes a binding covenant with us where there are serious consequences if he breaks it, which he won't, but that he's willing to bind himself in an agreement. He's willing to bind himself with us. Think of the most annoying, evil person you can think of and then handcuff yourself to them for the rest of your life. That's just an inkling of what God has done with us in the covenants. Okay, and so he is a covenantal God um, that binds himself to us. And that's where we see this in the name Yahweh. Okay, I will use this name up and down. And I know that's unfamiliar to a lot of people. But the reality is, there is no being in the entire universe that has the name Yahweh except for him. And the reason is, in the ancient world, name is character. This is why you pray in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not a magical ending to a prayer. It's according to the character of Christ. Which means if you pray and it doesn't match up the character of Christ, then you're accepting that you won't get it. His will be done, not mine. Okay, name is character which brings a whole new meaning to the you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, which means if you do anything in your character that does not match up with God's character, you just violated that commandment. So basically every minute. So it has nothing to do with using his name as a cuss word. Okay, and so name is character. And so this is why there is no other God who can bear the name Yahweh, because there is no other God that has this character, transcendent, sovereign, intimately relational and pursuing. And so we see this in Genesis, Exodus 3.13. His name is not revealed until Exodus 3. However, you're going to see his name popping up over and over again. Because whenever you see the letters, all right, if you ever see lowercase l-o-r-d, that's just the word Adonai. Okay, that just means sir, master, okay, coach, teacher, something like that. But whenever your Bible has all capital l L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. Okay, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so you'll see that name over and over and over again in Genesis, even though he does not reveal it and give his name to Moses until chapter 3 of Exodus. And so basically what this name communicates, this is like when you're watching foreign films and they say one word and there's this long subtitle. This means four things. First, it states that I am. But it's not just I am. Okay, if you have a being talking to you, it's duh, he is. Okay, that's not like hard to figure out. And none of the ancient people in the ancient world denied the existence of Yahweh. They just denied whether they owed fidelity to him or not, obedience, or whether he was legitimately powerful. So when he's communicating I am, which is interesting, when you go through that text, that's just the to, do, to be verb. Okay, and he uses I am as in he was. He says, tell them that I have been. And you tell them that I will be their deliverer. He actually uses that I am in all the tenses in that chapter and multiple times and throughout the Exodus. And so the point that he's communicating here is that he is self-existent. 
When he says that I am, he says I am self-existent. And the fact that he keeps using all tenses of the to be verb, he's communicating that he's always existed and always will exist. You see this in Revelation when the cherubim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, meaning that he's always existed. There is no other God in the entire universe that's always existed and always will. All the gods have a beginning and all the gods have an end. Okay, except for Allah, but Allah is a plagiarism of the Bible, than the by of, of our God, the Bible. Um, so he's stating that he's always existed. The second thing that he's stating here with this word I am is because he is coming to Moses for the deliverance to deliver Israel from the Egyptian gods. So he's establishing himself as the same creator over creation. So by saying this I am, He's saying that I am the one that created. I am the one who will save you. Okay, so he's connecting himself to sovereign creator. So not only is he saying I've always existed and always will exist, and I'm self-existent, but the by I am, the finality of it, I have always existed, is also tying him as the creator, the sovereign God. So the I am name is communicating the transcendence, the sovereignty of God. But the third thing that is communicating is over and over and over again, if you pay attention, Moses has all these excuses of why he doesn't want to do this. Um, finally, in the end, he just says, I'm not going to do it, which is like, oh, so dangerous. So over and over and over again, God keeps saying, I will be with you. I'm the one who gives people the ability to talk. Here's a sign of proof that I'm with you. Okay, he keeps saying, I'm with you, I'm with you, which means the context is defining his name as, I am the ever-present helper who is always with you. Okay, so number three, he is the ever-present helper because he's always existed and always will, and he's always with you because he's always existed and he always will. So that's the relational part of God. He's basically saying to Moses, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm speaking to you right now. No other God has done that. I'm going to, Abraham, he comes to Abraham, speaks to him, promises a child. No other God has ever done that. He's actually going to come and eat with Abraham. No other God has ever done that. I am the ever-present helper is always with you. Which is interesting because Jesus is the one who calms down and walks in the midst of us, according to the book of Hebrews. And then the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who will come along your side. And so all three members of the Trinity communicate themselves as, I am with you. And the fourth one that he reveals himself as is, I am the God of the covenant. He's going to make a covenant with Abraham. And whenever God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what he's saying is, I am the God of the covenant. I am the God of the promises. I am the God who makes good on what I say. And so that's important. To understand. And so he's saying this, and of course Jesus is going to kick into that later and say, why is it that God keeps saying, I am the God of Abraham if he's dead? He must not be dead. He's still living. And so he communicates the eternality of the soul by connecting into that because the covenant keeps living. Abraham's a member of the promises. And so that communicates relational too. So notice that there's four things two emphasize sovereignty and transcendence, and two represent his relational covenantal nature. And so the name Yahweh communicates the absolute uniqueness of Yahweh, of himself, that is not found in any other part. Now, why do I spend so much time on this when this is an Exodus name and not a Genesis name? Because it is used so much in Genesis. And you're going to see in Genesis, and what Moses is trying to do is connect Elohim 
which is the name of God as king and creator. And he's going to put Elohim with Yahweh as the God who made a covenant with Abraham and brought Israel out of slavery. And he's going to put them together in Genesis to communicate to the Jews, the God that you saw, the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that saved you, the God on this mountain right now is the same God that created the world, the same God who was involved in the patriarch's life, the same God that made a covenant with them, and the same God that showed up to honor those promises. And that's the point that he's trying to make here, is even though we don't get that name till Exodus, Moses is trying to let you know this is the same God. And so when you're reading Genesis, you're supposed to think, he's going to honor this, he's going to honor this, he's going to honor this, because that's what his name means. And so it is a covenantal name. And this is also important because God will actually use this to say something about characters. When we get later into Genesis and the patriarchs, the people who use the name Yahweh and the people who don't, it says something about their name, their character. Even though they probably were not really using that name in real life because they didn't know that name Yahweh yet, God knows their heart and he puts that name in their mouth or does it in order to say something about their heart. And so especially when we get to Gideon, which is interesting, Gideon won't call him Yahweh until Yahweh burns up the sacrifice and then he realizes it is God. Then he calls him Yahweh, but then when he begins to doubt Yahweh, he goes back to Elohim. And he's showing that he doesn't believe this is a covenantal God anymore. Prove to me that you really do what, do, will do what you will say. Well, if, he'd need a, if he didn't need proof, he'd be using the name Yahweh. But the fact that he needs proof means he doesn't really believe this is the God of his promises. And so the, the, the narrator actually uses this name to communicate who God is and whether that character sees himself as part of the covenant or not. Or they see Yahweh as a part of the covenant. And so that is the covenantal God. The third theme is promises and blessings. Over and over and over and over again, you'll see God keep making promises. And the whole drive of the Torah are the promises made in Genesis and the blessings that were made available and God honoring that in the rest of the Torah. And so what you have is you have God putting Adam and Eve in a land where they will have blessings. They lose those blessings because of their sin. So God comes in and makes promises to give them those blessings back. Those who obey don't receive the blessings and the promises, and those, did I say that wrong? Those who obey receive the blessings and the promises, and those who do not obey do not receive them. And the big theme of the entire Bible is your response to God. Okay, your response to God. He is always faithful to honor his promises. He always desires to give you blessings. Thus, the nature of a covenant, whether you participate in that or partake of it, is up to you. And so this is what he is communicating. Now, right now, I'm giving you theology. The whole book of Genesis is going to show God actually living this stuff out. So structure and form. The structure of Genesis is divided into ten sections. Um, you can divide it in 10, and then you can divide it in another way. The first way you divide it is called toledots. Toledot is the Hebrew word for the generations, or the account of. And there are 10 toledots. And we're, I'm going to point these out as we go through them. And the first one will be the toledot, the account of the heavens and the earth. And then it will be the account of Noah, or the account of Adam, the account of Abraham. And so this is going to begin a marker of a new segment in Genesis. And so there's 10 toledots, which is going to match up with the 10 commandments. Okay, 10 is a symbolic number 
of authority, a word spoken with authority. And so he is giving you 10 authoritative accounts of how he's intimately involved in humanity that will then be followed up by 10 commands that should govern humanity's life. And so even though we will not do Exodus in this lesson, that will be in the fall, we will be making a lot of connections to the book of Exodus. So these are 10 Tola dots, and we'll go through those. The other one is Genesis can also be divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 50. Chapters 1 through 11 is what God intended us to be and how we lost that. And it's going to be kind of depressing for the first couple weeks, because it's just going to be man's horrible wretchedness over and over and over and over again. And God is making the point that you have nothing. You're a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's going to be the point for first 11 chapters. And then we'll get this hinge verse, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And in that, it'll be God coming to Abraham, choosing him, saying, Go, and I'll give you a land, I'll make you a nation, I'll um, bless you, so that you will bless the world. And that becomes the hinge out of our total despair and hopelessness as sinners into this God is going to do something to change that. And so then chapter 12 through 50 is going to be the unfolding of those promises, the development of that. But unfortunately, 1 through 11 is not going to die in its themes because the patriarchs are going to screw up a lot too. And they're going to keep threatening the promises over and over and over again. The first threat to the promise is you're going to have a kid. And then he gives his wife off to the Pharaoh. Abraham does. So that's kind of a threat to the promise when your wife is with somebody else. And so they're going to keep threatening us, but God is going to keep stepping in and honoring that. And so chapter 12 through 50 is going to be the development of that. The other thing that you need to understand is the first 11 chapters, God is the main character. He does primarily all the speaking and talking. There's very little dialogue with Adam and Eve. You don't really get to know anything about them, really. They're called flat characters. Their personalities are very one-dimensional. You don't learn anything about who they are. There's not really a lot of emotions there. Noah's the same way. You don't get a lot of emotions, a lot of character development. But God is very much involved in actor and the main character. When you get to chapters 12 through 25, the story of Abraham, you're going to get God becomes a little less active, and the characters become more round. And round means they're more emotional. There's more character traits that you learn about them. And so God only shows up to Moses a few times throughout that story. And yet the humans are the ones doing all the acting. They're the more dominant characters. Then when you, but yet the episodes in 1 through 11, they're very choppy. There seems to be no connection to each other. How much time has passed between them? I have no idea. When you get to Mo, Abraham, the stories become a little bit more connected together, but they're still very episodic. Okay, like watching a sitcom, you have no, each story is disconnected from the previous, but it's characters with the same life. And so they're very episodic, but they start becoming more together. When you get to the Jacob story, which is chapters 25 through 36, God only shows up twice, maybe three times in visions. Never really directly talks to Abraham, or sorry, Jacob, but Jacob becomes far more developed. He's a much more complicated character, an igna an imagic, uh, 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 a mysterious character. Can't say it, change a different word. You see, but you see the story actually becomes a more developed story. 
When you get to Joseph, which is chapter 37 through 50, God doesn't show up ever. He doesn't talk. He doesn't do anything. Just a couple of dreams, but God is not the main character. And Joseph and the brothers are highly developed characters. And the story is one of the most beautiful stories in Genesis. Not diminish the others, but just the way that it's developed in literary devices and that kind of stuff. And so you almost see in a literary structure, you have a God who creates humanity to be his image and commands them to be fruitful, multiply, and take over the planet. And then he literally structures the book of Genesis as his giving over. Just as your child grows up, you're going to be less and less involved in their life, making decisions for them and all that kind of stuff, hopefully. And so God does the same thing. And so he begins to hand creation, not, and listen, Genesis is not making the point that God's not involved. You get the sense that God is still intimately involved, but he's just not literarily active anymore because he's making the point we're meant to be the image. However, because they screwed up so much, you'll see in Exodus, God comes right back in again and becomes the dominant character and everybody becomes flat again. And then there's this gradual round and development of characters, and God begins to back off more and more and more in the Torah. And so you see he structures the book literarily in order to communicate the point that you're my children. You're supposed to be growing up and acting like me. You're not supposed to need me all the time anymore. Kind of like Jesus is intimately involved in the disciples' life teaching them, and then he's asleep while there's a storm. So he's kind of not there. And then the next storm, he's not even the boat at all. And then the next storm, he's completely off the planet. He's trying to wean them off of him. Even though he's still intimately involved, he's not directly there in the lit- literary devices. And so this is the structure. And I'll keep referring to this um, over and over and over again as we go through Genesis. Because now, as we get into Genesis, I can start fleshing this out. And we'll start seeing this happen. Drinking from the fire hose.